This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg One twenty-eight. So we learned in the first half that although it is possible for the average Jew to avoid, after 120 years, to avoid Gehenim, literally translated as purgatory, or conventionally <laughs> known as hell, because Gehenim is really a cleansing process for sin. Whenever we sin, it leaves a scar on our soul. Whenever we say a lie, whenever we do something wrong, whenever we think something wrong, it leaves an impression. We don't live in a vacuum. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Just like the physical body. Everything we eat registers, even in our youth. Everything registers, everything is recorded. Nothing is forgotten. It leaves an impression. They did a study. They took little children. Children who ate fruits and vegetables when they were young were likely, more likely, 50, 60 years later to be alive and healthy and cancer-free. So the body doesn't, doesn't forget anything. It doesn't forgive anything. Everything that we do registers and, and has an impact, leaves an impression. And that's so too spiritually. Every thought, every speech, every action creates, uh, generates a, an energy, generates and leaves an impression. So if we do something wrong, the soul, the neshama, in order for the neshama to be elevated, to go to the next level, there's a clogging, there's a blockage. And the neshama has to be cleansed from that blockage. That's what we call Gehenna. It's nothing physical, but it's spiritual. The physical is just a metaphor. What's true in the physical world is how much more so that's true on the spiritual world. In the physical world, you have a cloggage, you have a blockage. It doesn't allow the blood to flow. interrupts the life force. So too, on a spiritual level, when you have a spiritual scar, it, it gets in the way. It doesn't allow you to go forward. It doesn't allow you to advance. Just like when you have a psychological scar. When a person has a psychological wound, a psychological scar, you can't grow, you can't go forward. It just blocks you. There's nothing in your way, but you just can't go forward. Until you deal, until you resolve this blockage, this scar, you're just not going anywhere. Same, to, same is true spiritually. If there's something you have to work through, if there's something you haven't resolved yet, um, if there's a fear, if there's a negative impression, negative scar, you must deal with it. It's impossible for you to go to the next level without dealing with it. That's what we call Gehenna. It's like taking a, a, a suit, taking a beautiful clothes, beautiful suit, a dress, a shirt, and cleansing it. You have a clean, clean, clean shirt, clean suit, straight from the manufacturer. Our neshama becomes clean, and then we, we soil it. And you just have to take it to the cleaners. You're confident. At the end of the day, you will come. You will get receive and return a clean suit. But it depends what process. There's certain things that clean very easily and there's certain things that the cleaner really has to dwell on. He has to custom, custom, custom-made cleaning. 
because the, the, the dirt has really, really got into the fabric. So it all depends how hard we lived, what kind of life we lived. If we did something negative and it really worked into the, our fabric of our being and our character and personality, then it's just more difficult to get out. Eventually, it all gets out because essentially, essentially we have a clean set of clothes, but we just have to get out the schmutz. And then we can go to the next level. You can't go to heaven with clothes that are, that, that are dirty. You have, to, you have to clean yourself before. And um, so this is a process that only applies to someone who actually sinned. Someone who spoke negatively, fought negatively, who acted negatively. But theoretically, even the average Jew, every Jew has the potential to go through life without sinning at all. Following the code of Jewish law, thinking like a Jew, speaking like a Jew, acting like a Jew, everything should be 100%. Not one moment in your life we have the option, the ability to go through our entire lives and not sinning. But then there's another concept called Chibut HaKever, the purgatory of the grave, which he describes almost everyone goes through. It's almost unheard of that a person should not go through this experience. Why? Because this has nothing to do with sin. This is as a result of us enjoying things that are kosher and permissible. Enjoying it for its own sake. Just as an end in itself. Just indulging. Enjoying the pleasures of eating, drinking. Glad kosher. But just indulging and enjoying the pleasures without any higher thought. Without thinking I'm eating because I should have strength or I should serve Hashem. I'm not thinking about Hashem. I'm not anti. I'm not, I'm not just not thinking about Hashem. I'm just thinking about myself and, and satisfying my uh, urge, my need. And just enjoying the experience, the physical experience. Whatever experience it may be, whether it's eating or, or intimacy, etc. And when a Jew fails to inject an awareness of Hashem, then for that moment, we, it, that experience degrades us. And that, that's degraded to the level of the klipa. It just becomes a selfish act without any higher connection. And although, because it's something kosher and permissible, it always retains the you always retain the ability to re-elevate it because let's say you ate and you ate you, you picked out you ate kosher but you were just enjoying the experience you weren't thinking about Hashem you weren't thinking of anything spiritual of anything divine anything godly but then as a result of this good delicious sumptuous uh, feast you have you're energized and then you go to shul and you learn and you daven with this energy. You're rejuvenated, and now you take this energy and you study Torah with it, you do mitzvah with it. Then that energy becomes elevated, because now you use that energy for a higher purpose. Although, during the eating, during the act of eating, that wasn't your intent, but it doesn't matter. Since, essentially, it's kosher, it, still, it always retains the potential to be elevated. So if eventually you use that energy to serve Hashem, that energy is elevated. However, because in the interim, at the moment that you ate, you did not think about Hashem. And at that moment, it was a degrading experience. It was an egotistical experience. It was a degrading experience. That scar remains. Especially since you've internalized it. You've eaten it. It has become part of your blood. It has become part of you. So that impurity, that scar to the soul remains. And therefore, unless a person is a very rare individual who follows the example of our teacher, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, 
who although he enjoyed and benefited from this world like no one else, he was one of the wealthiest Jews that ever lived. He was in the same caliber as Antoninus, the uh, Roman, uh, Roman uh, uh, Caesar. And, and he enjoyed, every, he had a royal table, and he enjoyed the lavishness and the luxury of his table, of having around his table at all times, having such a lavish table and able to feed his guests lavishly and all the delicacies that people could only dream of, that only kings could afford. So, of course, he enjoyed and he benefited from it. And yet, he can honestly say, at the end of his life, he says, God can testify that he did not enjoy one iota from this world. Because while he was experiencing in this luxury, in this delight, his intention was, his intention was to serve Hashem. And that's, that's possible. Every Jew is capable, every Jew is capable of experiencing that. So although it's possible for us to follow the example of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Huda the Prince, the author of the Mishnah, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult that a person should engage in things that are kosher, and yet, we're not talking about something that's forbidden, we're talking about kosher, glad kosher, and yet every, every activity that he does, he has in mind that it's for the sake of heaven, for the sake of Hashem, it's extremely difficult. So it's very rare. Someone like Rabbi Huda the Prince, of course, he was a tzaddik, he wasn't even tempted for any, uh, to do anything materialistic. So, of course, a tzaddik doesn't have to go through the experience of chibut hakever, this, of this purgatory. But the average person, it's almost inevitable that every one of us is going to have to go through. Even, even if we never sinned in our life. Very, very few <laughs> individuals on that level either. But, um, but at least that's more likely... Then a person who not only didn't never sin, but even all of his activities in, in in all his engagement in permissible things, doing business, eating, sleeping, drinking, relaxing, vacationing, whatever he may be doing, all of his activities are totally saturated and permeated with an awareness and a sense of Hashem. That my body is merely a container, and that everything that I have is really for the sake of Hashem. As we learned today in the laws of Shabbos, Maimonides. Unbelievable halacha. Maimonides writes that um, one of the 39 categories of work, prohibited work, is the, the is carrying. Now, in order to violate, to trespass, to transgress the prohibition of carrying, which would uh, result in a death penalty, or if you do it accidentally, you have to bring a sacrifice, a sin offering, is only if you carry a certain amount. A, a amount that's useful, that's beneficial. If you take out food, it has to be food that's beneficial to something. So if you take out uh, certain food, it has to be at least to fill up the mouthful of, 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 uh, of, of a goat. Someone has to be able to benefit from it. If you take out food that's not beneficial, that's not called carrying, because I didn't gain anything from it. Now what if a person took out, he wanted to carry some mustard seeds, but it's hard to carry. He's looking for a bag. He couldn't find the bag. The only bag he found was a huge suitcase. So he puts the mustard seeds in the suitcase. But not enough that it's beneficial to anyone. It's less than the amount, the minimal amount required to violate, to trespass, to transgress the prohibition of carrying. And he carries his suitcase out. Has he violated the, the law of carrying or not? 
Does he have to bring a sacrifice if he did it unintentionally? Yeah, the suitcase he's carrying. No. So the Lord, you would think, who cares about the mustard seeds? But he's carrying this huge suitcase. Comes the Torah and says, no. Allah says, no. He's exempt. Why? Because the suitcase is nothing. The suitcase doesn't matter. The suitcase doesn't count. The suitcase is only a container in order to carry the content of the suitcase. Don't look at the suitcase. The suitcase is nothing. The suitcase is a means to an end. It's what's inside that matters. And what's inside that's being carried doesn't, doesn't pass the minimal amount. Therefore, he's exempt. He hasn't violated, biblically, he hasn't violated the law of carrying. And what a tremendous lesson in life. And this is what the, this is the ideal that the Tanya has been discussing in chapter 7. This is for a Jew. That for us, for a Jew, the Neshama, that's our identity. That's who I am. Who am I? Doctor, lawyer, businessman. That's what I do. That's not who I am. What am I? What's my self-definition? My self-definition is I'm a Jew. I have a relationship with Hashem. I have a neshama. I have a soul. That's who I am. That's what I do, but this is who I am. Everything that I do is just a means to an end. It's not the beginning and the end of who I am. And then, when it's clear, when it's crystal clear to you that your body and your physical is just a container, just a means to an end, it's what's inside that matters, then that becomes your identity. Nothing else matters. Then the body becomes a vehicle to holiness. Then your business, your office, everything that you're doing, all your activities, you're eating, you're drinking, your table, becomes a sanctuary, becomes a sanctuary that was made of gold and silver and copper. It wasn't made of spiritual items. It was made of mundane physical items. But everything becomes a temple. Because it's a home. The content is what matters. And the home is Tashem. And every one of us could be a home Tashem when our, it's what's the content of our life, the meaning of our life, the purpose of our life. What's the highlight? What's the theme? What's our life all about? What's the highlight of our life? Is Shabbos the highlight of our life? I mean, there's no name for, for every day of the week. First day, second day, third day of the week. And Shabbos is the only day that has a name. Shabbos is not just a day of rest. Shabbos is the highlight of the week. Because that's, that's, when, you can, that's when you see what the person is all about. That's when the, person, that's when the day that a person comes alive. That's a day of pleasure. Pleasure means, where's the person really at? When do you come alive? Are you alive the six days of the week when you're pursuing your career? And Shabbos is just a day of R&R. So you should have the strength to go back and do the real thing. Or just the opposite. Shabbos is a day of pleasure. Shabbos is, Shabbos is when you come to life. All week long, I can't wait for Shabbos. I'm counting down to Shabbos. I can't wait. It's not like Shabbos. Oy, Shabbos is here. Oy, can't do this and I can't do that. Day of restrictions. Shabbos is... is they have rest, they have pleasure, because that's the highlight. The week, although the week takes up six days a week, majority of my time, only one day of Shabbos, but that's not who I am. When do I come alive on Shabbos? Everything else is a means to an end. And the same is true with our, our daily lives. Most of our life is occupied and engaged in material things. Unless a person studies in yeshiva all day. Most of our time is occupied by eating and drinking and sleeping and doing business and making a living. We, we, dab, we come in the morning, we daven a little. This time of the year we daven a little more. We have slichas tomorrow at a quarter to seven. But the, the um, how much time is it already? You come, you make some time to learn Torah. But how much time is it? It's just a fraction of the day. The majority of the time is spent in mundane things. But that's not how you, that's not how you measure. The suitcase is huge. But the mustard seeds are very few. But that's what it's all about. It's not about the suitcase, it's about the mustard seeds.
it's not about the vessel. It's not about the material, the physical. That's the container. That's the that's just it's the content that matters. It's the quality, and that's what I'm all about. So potentially, we all have the potential, and that's what we should aspire to. That's what we should strive towards. This is the ideal. Al Rebbe is giving us the ideal that we live up to it. Halavai, halavai benini, halavai. We should live up to the standard. But this is the ideal that a Jew strives and aspires to. That everything that we do should be permeated with godliness. I'm always aware of Hashem, always connected to Hashem. Not only when I'm in shul, on Yom Kippur, dressed in white. All the time, 24-7. Whatever I'm doing, I feel I'm on a mission. I'm connecting with Hashem. Hashem is with me in business. Hashem is with me. My table is an altar. Everything that I do is for the sake of Hashem. But that's still a very, very rare accomplishment. Most people, it's very difficult to accomplish. Even if you don't do anything wrong in your life, but that everything that's kosher, that's permissible, should be done for the sake of heaven from the moment that you engage in that activity. Not only later on you take that energy and you learn with it, you do good deeds with it, but even initially when you're doing that activity, it should all be for the sake of Hashem. It's a very difficult thing to do. So that's why it's very rare that anyone escapes from this purgatory of chibut hakevet. And now he says that there's another thing that's very difficult to escape from, which is kosher, something that's not forbidden. It's kosher activity. But nevertheless, it leaves a scar because it's not done for the sake of heaven. And what is that, Kalman? In the middle of page 128. We shall now learn what is necessary for the rectification of permitted words not spoken for the sake of heaven. As for innocent idle chatter, such as in the case of an ignoramus who cannot study, he who is able to study is constantly obligated to fulfill the commandment of studying Torah. For him, idle chatter is prohibited. For the ignoramus, however, idle chatter may be permissible. So he's trying to explain, how is this a good example? Idle chatter, how can you call idle chatter permissible? It's prohibited. If a Jew has time and energy to study Torah, you're obligated to study Torah 24-24-7. So what do you mean idle chatter is permissible? The moment you waste your time and you don't study Torah, if you had an opportunity to study and you don't study Torah, then at that moment you've, you've violated the greatest mitzvah, which is the study of Torah. Even a Jew who's ill is obligated to study Torah. Everyone is obligated to study Torah. It's like the breath we breathe. Rabbi Kiva said it's like the water. A Jew without Torah is like a fish without water. You can't stop breathing and you can't stop being absorbed in your life source. So, idle chatter is not just something that's permissible. It's not a good example. It's not just something that's permissible. It's something that, 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 that's prohibited. Remember, we had a Shabbaton in Crown Heights. And uh, my father-in-law was speaking. He was a speaker, the guest speaker. And someone asked him. You know, he was the publisher and editor and founder of Algemin Journal. And in front of a huge audience, he started uh, like criticizing his paper, this and that. And I remember his response was just very, very to the point. He says, he asked if rabbis are looking over the paper. Are rabbis editing the paper, making sure that everything that goes into the paper is kosher? My father-in-law responded, he says, Listen, if you're asking a rabbi, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be reading a paper altogether. If you have time, you should be studying Torah. Who gives you a right to read a paper in the first place? 
So if you if if you're someone who's worried about rabbis and you're following the halacha, you shouldn't. You have no right to read to read the paper. Period. Paper is not for you. Paper is for those people who are not studying Torah. And that's who the Alter Rebbe is talking to. The Alter Rebbe is talking to the simple people. Simple people who God did not give them the ability to study Torah all day. They just don't have the ability. They don't have the mental capacity. They're ignorant. Or they don't have the ability because they, they never studied and they never learned. So you can't be held accountable why they aren't studying Torah all day. Technically, you can fulfill the obligation by reading the Torah. But God doesn't expect a simple person to 24-7 just to sit and read the Torah something he doesn't understand. It's just not going to happen. He's just not going to do it. Um, so he doesn't have an obligation to study Torah all day. The obligation to study Torah all day is someone who's not an ignoramus, someone who's capable, someone who has a brain, someone who has the capacity, has the zitzflesh. Not everyone has the zitzflesh to sit and study and to sit and sit and sit. As they say in Yiddish, to quetch the bank, to sit on the bench and sit and study. It's, it's a very difficult thing. So for those people to sit and chatter idly is, is a kosher activity. Nothing wrong. They don't have the time and energy. To, they don't have the energy to study Torah. They don't have the capacity to study Torah. They already fulfilled their obligation of studying Torah to the best of their ability. They read the Shema in the morning. They read the Shema at night. They fulfilled their obligation to study Torah. And the rest of the day, they're, they're going about their daily life, just like business is kosher and eating is kosher. It's a, it's a permissible activity. So to eat an idle chatter and having a conversation is, is, is a permissible activity. So you're calling them an ignoramus, which is like very low. Very, uh... well, ignoramus is just a fact. Ignoramus could be a very upright person, but someone who didn't learn. If you don't learn, you don't know. Someone is not capable of learning. But most of us don't learn Torah all day long. So we're in that category? Uh, most, most rabbis today would fit into that category. Doesn't it? Don't, be, don't be insulted. <laughs> The ignoramuses of the old, the olden days, was so, some of them were wiser, wiser than some of the rabbis we have today. You read stories 20 years ago, some wagon drivers knew the half of the Talmud by heart, and they would occupy their minds and traveling from city to city, they would, they would repeat by heart. The simplest person knew the whole Psalms by heart. Knew, you know, how many rabbis you know know the whole Psalms word for word? All 150 psalms by heart. I mean, who, who, who are we kidding? <laughs> so, so don't, don't get so insulted. <laughs> it's, we live in the age of mediocrity. You know, the geniuses of today wouldn't even pass, wouldn't even be counted as a mediocrity 200 years ago. So, you know, we're living in a very uh, dumbed-down age. So it's a, it's a different world. But someone who doesn't have the capacity to study, he's not expected to. So he's going about a kosher activity, which is idle talk, but he's not doing it for the sake of heaven. He's just having fun, just talking, just shooting the breeze, as they say, just, just enjoying himself. And that leaves a scar, like anything else. Any activity that's not done for the sake of Hashem, that's not elevated, that's not connected to the root and the source of reality, automatically becomes degraded. It becomes a, a, an impure experience, corrosive experience, a degrading experience, and it's very heavy on the soul. It's very difficult on the soul. It leaves a scar on the soul. And um, for that, the person, the neshama, after 120 years, the neshama needs a cleansing. Continue. But he must have his soul cleansed from the impurity of this klipa, 
through its being rolled in the hollow of a sling, as is stated in the Zohar, Parshat Bashala. The punishment is described as being slung from one end of the world to the other, or from Israel to other lands. The meaning of this is that the soul is flung from one extreme to the other. First it is shown the truth and preciousness of holiness, and then it is slung into and reminded of the thoughts and words it experienced while in the physical world, a most painful experience for the soul. So it doesn't mean physically the soul is flung or thrown from one end of the world to the other. It means from one extreme to the other, spiritually. From one, one experience to another experience. One experience is, there are moments, moments of grace that we all experience when you just feel such a closeness to Hashem. You just feel a love, a closeness. Your neshama just surfaces to the conscience. There's nothing in the way. And it's just such a, a sweet, ecstatic experience. Then we go back, revert back to our materialistic state of being. And if you indulge in materialism, especially if we do something transgress or violate, do something wrong, we lose that. You lose that purity. You lose that innocence. As much as you would like to experience that once again, you just lose it. You don't have the capacity anymore. All you can do is yearn for it. You remember. You have an impression of what it was like, and you wish you can have it once more, but you just can't, can't attain it. The innocence, the purity, that, that wholesomeness is just gone, and it's painful. So the neshama is taken from one experience. On one hand, the neshama has a revelation, and it experiences this uh, ecstatic feeling of bliss, of spirituality, and a moment later, it's thrown back into its previous life, where your entire life was engulfed, engaged in materialism. And it's so painful, because you're like torn away from this bliss, you're torn away from this ecstasy, from this sublime, you've, you've gotten a taste of something so deep, of something so genuine, something so profound, and then it was taken away from you. So you got a taste and then it's torn away from you. Your soul is torn back to your previous mundane, ordinary experience. And, you, and you're deprived and you lose that experience. And that's a very painful. The neshama is indescribably painful. That's what we call kafa kelo. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe said that the way to avert this, after 120 years you should avert this stage, because again, it's very rare for a person to go through his entire life a, without speaking idle words. And B, even if you are speaking idle words, but everything should be for the sake of heaven, you're constantly thinking about Hashem, it's a very difficult thing. So it's almost inevitable that everyone will have to go through this experience of kafa kela. But there is a way to avoid it. When a Jew etches into his mind, in your memory, words of Torah, and when you walk down the street, you're constantly reciting words of Torah. The Rebbe would walk down the street, you would see his mouth, his lips were always moving. He's reciting by heart words of Tanya, words of Torah, words of Tillam. He's just walking down the street instead of just wasting time. Saying words of Torah. If your mouth is constantly saying words of Torah, that will protect you after 120 years. That will save you and that will protect you. That you'll be able to avoid the, the, this horrible experience. It's being tossed and turned up and down. And it's not a roller coaster. It's not a fun ride. It's a, it's a very painful experience. But the soul will be speared from that experience. In addition to the great benefit that you have of reciting words of Torah that you purify the ear. It's called uh, ear purification. Just like you have pollution, you also have spiritual pollution. There are certain communities that are more 
polluted than others. If, it, if we had a spiritual detector, we were able to detect spiritual pollution. This neighborhood is very crusty, very materialistic, very dense. It's hard to pierce through. It's hard to feel, to breathe fresh air. What's fresh air? Fresh air is when you sense godliness, when you're able to take in life and you're able to take in godliness and appreciate godliness. Everything is so external and superficial, it's hard to breathe. It's like smog, spiritual smog. This clears up the spiritual smog. When a Jew walks down the street and you say words of Torah that are etched into your memory, by reciting those holy words, you actually clear the air. And you make it easier for everyone else to breathe. Not only clear it for yourself, but the whole atmosphere becomes pure. And then another person walking down the street is able to sense, breathe in, and able to sense and internalize godly things. And, um, but in addition, it also is a tremendous protection for the soul. But other than that, everyone has to go through, almost everyone has to go through this, this experience. Now on Yom Kippur, we make tshuva, and the book is cleaned up. Is, is that different than these various impurities? You know, there's some impurity left over after... Uh... Well, that's what we learned earlier. It's very... The only way to transform negative into positive is only through the highest level of teshuva, which is a teshuva of love, as we learned in chapter 7. If you go back, um, you can listen to it online, Lessons in Tanya, we had a whole discussion on that. The end, I think it's the third, the third one, chapter 7. Um, how through through truva that comes out of love, you can reach into your past and transform the negative into positive. But that's a very rare, it's a very unusual teshuva, which only comes as a result of the darkness. When a person sins and transpasses and transgresses, that void catapults you, that void gives you such an intense yearning and feeling to Hashem, that since it was impossible to achieve this intensity without that negative, Without that darkness, you could never have achieved such a level of light, quality of light. Therefore, the, the darkness itself becomes transformed into light. The negative itself is turned into positive. The so bitterness that's the story of the man who had the uh, Gentile family and he made shuva. And... Well, that, that's even a higher, that's even, that's an unusual level of the shuva. That, that's a level that's beyond, uh, that's even, he doesn't even discuss that level of the shuva. That's a level he doesn't even discuss there because it's so rare. But uh, that's a, a shuva that breaks through and penetrates through everything. So, if a person, ironically, if a person ate something not kosher, and that leads him to a highest level of teshuva, you can undo, that negative turns into positive. But here, we're talking about something kosher. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, I just ate, I indulged. I wasn't thinking about Hashem. So, just based on that, it's very difficult to reach that level of teshuva. So that's why he's saying, even if someone ate something that's kosher and he indulged, but then he takes that energy and he utilizes it for, for, for to serve Hashem. And then that experience is elevated. But since when you ate it, until you, until you took that energy and that strength and you um, spent it on something holy, there was that time period when you indulged and that became internalized, that became part of your blood system. Therefore, that scar remains. So even so, it it doesn't get wiped away. Even Yom Kippur doesn't wipe away. It's part of me. It became part of me. that negative impression. That impurity has become part of me. That's why at the end of 100, after 120 years, we need an atonement. That's the atonement, the purgatory of the caver of the grave, chibuta caver, and then you have the kafakela 
slinging the neshama soul being slung from one extreme to another extreme which is extremely extremely painful but with regard to forbidden speech such as scoffing and slander and the like which being prohibited stem from the three completely unclean people the hollow of a sling alone does not suffice to cleanse and remove the impurity of the soul but it the soul must descend into Gehenom purgatory which is a greater punishment and thus more effective in cleansing the soul so too with one who is able to engage in the study of Torah, but occupies himself instead with idle chatter. Someone who is not an ignoramus, someone who is capable. And then idle chatter involves a, a prohibition. He had the ability to study Torah and he didn't. And also if someone speaks, slanders, speaks Lashon Hara, lies, then that's prohibited. He violates one of the 630 mitzvah. That's absolutely evil. So then, kafakel is not enough. For all of these things, you need Gehenna, which is a more severe level of punishment, not punishment, cleansing, a um, more intense cleansing process. And um, for the, in order for the soul to be able to, be, to advance and go to the next level, the Garden of Eden. Continue. Um, the hollow of the sling alone cannot effectively scour and cleanse his soul but it must receive the severe penalties which are meted out for neglect of the Torah in particular. Apart from the general retribution for the neglect of positive commandments through indolence, namely the purgatory of snow, as is explained elsewhere. The purgatory, Gehinnom, where the soul is cleansed of the stains of sin so that it may enter paradise to enjoy the radiance of Hashem's glory, operates on the principle of measure for measure, i.e. punishment from kind. Thus, sins of commission caused by the heat of passion and lust are cleansed in a gehinom, nehar, literally stream of fire, while sins of omission due to indolence and coolness, i.e. lack of fervor, are cleansed in a gehinom of snow. So it's measure for measure. A person who is lazy, lifeless, listless, came to, comes to anything holy. The nature of holiness is fire, life, vibrant, passion and here the person is listless comes to anything holy you can hardly move no excitement no energy no fervor no enthusiasm cold-blooded even on the most joyous day of the year in Simchas Torah the person has to pinch his cheeks to get a smile out <laughs> there's no there's no inner there's no inner joy there's no inner excitement there's no inner feeling there's no inner connection so measure for measure in order to cleanse the soul of these sins, of the sin of indolence, of laziness, of lifelessness, of listlessness, the soul has to go through the experience, whatever it is. It's a spiritual experience. We don't know what it is, and we should never find out. The Gehenim of, 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 of snow. Again, everything in the physical world has a spiritual parallel. So you can imagine rolling around the snow is a very painful experience. So you can just imagine, spiritually, for the soul, there is a parallel experience. And that's not just for the sake of pain, for the sake of punishment. It cleanses the soul from any negative scar that resulted from this, from this quality. And the same is a sin of passion. A person sins out of passion. In a moment of passion, a moment of heat. So when a person sins in that moment, the Gehenim that cleanses the person of the sin is also fiery type of experience. The Torah could only speak in the language of men. It can't describe 
physical experiences. You know, the closest we can get is understanding shame. You know, imagine, imagine, imagine how you would feel if you spend your life, your career, working on something. And then you discover that everything you've accomplished is worth nothing. And everything that you've neglected is worth billions and trillions. How would you feel? You would feel, you'd feel, imagine how you, how you would feel. You wasted your whole life pursuing things that are empty and meaningless. And you had no time and no energy to pursue the one thing that's meaningful, that's real, for all eternity. The good deeds, the mitzvahs, the tzedakah that you give us forever, the good deeds that you do is forever, the Torah that you learn is forever, the prayers that you do are forever, the kindness that you do, these, these are forever. It's the only thing that really matters. At the end of the day, forever and ever. And you had no time and energy for it. And you pursued all your energies, all you had time for was for the things that at the end, the bigger picture really means nothing. Imagine when you're confronted with that realization. Is there worse hell? The inner shame, the inner regret, the inner feeling of emptiness and cheap and uh, you, know, you waste it. You waste it. What a wasted opportunity. Imagine if you had the opportunity to make the business deal of a lifetime. To invest in the stock of a lifetime. And for the most foolish reasons you just neglected it. How would you feel when the other one who did invest is richer than Bill Gates? And you could have been there and yet you lost the opportunity. Is there a worse hell? Is there worse suffering? So it's not suffering, you know, the eternal barbecue <laughs> Christians talk about. It's not the physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. But it's worse than any physical pain you can imagine. The inner, that confrontation, that inner shame, inner realization. Because there's no excuses. See, in this world you can rationalize, you can excuse, we can dull the pain. When we're not living up to our potential, and we're not being who we could be, we dull, we dull our realization. We dull ourselves. We deny it. We can't deny it. We rationalize it. If we can't rationalize it, we excuse it. And if not, we just don't pay attention. We love ourselves anyway. But after 120 years, you can't rationalize. You can't hide. You can't escape. There's no rationalizations. There's no. It's just naked. It's just. It's it's the world of truth. Everything is truthful. 100 percent truthful. There's no diplomacy, and there's no. There's no cutting corners and there's no... Everything, the blatant truth is just steers you in the face. That confrontation is, is, a, is a very painful thing. We couldn't handle it. We see in this world if someone confronts us with the truth that we can't handle. It's too much for us to handle. Imagine when there's no place to hide. There's no rationalization, no excuses, no nothing. Everything is the truth, like it is. And the person lived a lie all his life, deluded himself all his life, avoided reality all his life, and all of a sudden you're confronted with reality. A person who was genuine all his life, and his whole life he tried to be genuine, and he fits like a, like, like a hand in a glove, going to the transition to the next world, the world of truth. All his life he tried to be truthful, so he's nothing to be afraid of. But a person who spends his whole life lying and cheating and lying to himself and deceiving and avoiding and hiding and getting away with everything and cutting corners. And then suddenly, the facade is ripped away. The body is gone. The whole facade is ripped away. 
confronted with the naked truth. It, it's the most painful experience. Especially someone who's not used to truth. All his life he's run away from the truth. He feels uncomfortable, squirms. He's, it's the most horrible feeling. That's the, that's the closest we can get to have an idea what it means Gehenim. It doesn't mean physical, like someone's punishing us or hurting us. It's a can- consequence. It's a consequence of the type of life that we live. And it takes the Neshama time. But that's part of the atonement process. When the Neshama experiences that shame, that burning shame, that's worse than any physical fire in this world could possibly feel. That eternal shame. Because physical pain comes and goes. But spiritual pain, it's like, it's like eternity. Because in the eternal scheme of things, this is what I did. I blew it. I messed up. But, but experiencing that pain is part of the purification process. Once you pass through that shame, and then you can get through it, and then your neshama can start growing and start moving forward. Like a child that grows and can start going to the next level and start enjoying the Garden of Eden, start enjoying the other life, start enjoying that spiritual life, that blissful life. A person <coughs> whose whole identity is tied up with materialism, going to the next world is hell. Because in the, the transition to the world of truth, the spiritual world, he's lost. So it, it, this purification process helps the soul wake up and grow up and start, start until the neshama could start enjoying this new life. There's no reality. That's what he calls hell. How long does it take? So it says a Russia, an evil person, a real evil person, um, it's 12 months of hell. That's why we, start say, we stop saying Kaddish after 11 months. Because no one wants to say that, my, that a parent, God forbid, is a Russia. So we publicly say, I believe my parent, out of respect, that my parent is not in the category of a Russia. What makes a Russia? And what? Hashem knows. You know, we, 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 we're not the judge. We're not the judge. We don't know how to judge these things. Sometimes a person who should know better does a small sin that's worse than someone who doesn't know better could do something egregious. Only Hashem really knows how to judge every individual. You know, sometimes one thing is equivalent of many other things. And sometimes, you know, so only Hashem really knows how to really judge the severity and how to evaluate such things. It's not, an, it's not a human evaluation. You have to know the person, the circumstance, the sin, the, the background. Only Hashem is infinite wisdom. He personally judges. And, 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 and He knows the truth, what effect this has in the neshama. And whatever happens, it's a consequence of our actions, a consequence of our being, of our behavior, of our actions. You know, there's, there's no escaping. You can't... We did something, we did something. We had that experience, we had that experience. Either we have to get through it. We can't avoid it, can't ignore it. Either we have to atone for it, or we have to remedy it, or we have to amend it, or we have to transform it, or change it. But, but something, you can't go forward until, until you can't run before you walk. You fall, it's a stage. You have to go through the stage and finish, and then you can go to the next <coughs> level. It's not unlike a physical development of a child child has to go through a whole bunch of steps. You can't skip a single step. You skip, skip a single step. There's special needs children. 
they, they can't get to the next step. They can't skip. You have to go through from the beginning every single step, and that leads to the next step. So too spiritually. You can't skip any steps. If a person in this world didn't mature, and didn't grow up, and didn't work in themselves, and their personality and their character, and didn't acquire or accumulate a wealth of Torah, mitzvot, and good deeds, and tzedakah, then you come to the next world, the person is impoverished. The person doesn't have the tools, doesn't have the... He's like a baby, a child, spiritual baby. He hasn't, he's never, he's never, he's still under the table. He could be a 99-year-old person, but spiritually he's a baby. He's never advanced, never matured, never grew up, never experienced anything spiritual. A person who goes through life and never had a single meaningful experience, deep spiritual experience, uh, uh, you know, hasn't changed anything in their life, in their personality and character. Uh, you know, that person can't advance. He can't, he can't go forward. So the, the positive things that you do in your life have no effect really on the negative. It's separate and apart. But that works out also in, in paradise, but not in camp. You know, is that the way to understand it? Or? Well, you're asking since we go by the majority. In other words, the majority of a person was good deeds. But nevertheless, because he had these negative experiences, he's poisoned. The, the Avera, he has to go through Gehenna. He has so to cleanse himself. Every... He has to cleanse himself. So the positive things that we do, where, where is that? Oh, the positive things are rewarded. These are. This is what helps us advance. This is what helps us. We enjoy the benefit. We benefit and enjoy the benefit from 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 these mitzvot. But in order to enjoy the benefit of these mitzvot, first we have to cleanse the scars, whatever is blocking us, whatever is getting in the way. You can't. You see, in this world we have both worlds together. In this world, we have a mingling, a commingling. We have a confusion. We have body and soul, material, spiritual, evil inclination, good inclination. Everything is together. After 120 years, everything is clear. You can't mix the two. Light is light and dark is dark. Good is good and evil is evil. You can't... It's not a mishmash. It's the world of truth. Everything is clear. Everything is compartmentalized. Everything is very clear, crystal clear. So this gets in the way. If you have any scar, if you have any baggage, any negative that you bring with you, that you haven't atoned for, you haven't mended, that tshuva helps. If you do tshuva, even the lower level of tshuva. That's what it says. Before a person passes away, you can do tshuva. The last moment of your life, the last breath of your life, you can do tshuva. That's why life in this world is so precious. One moment in this world. The doctors don't appreciate it. The doctors in the hospital are pushing everyone to die quicker so they can empty out of bed for financial reasons. Have no appreciation at one moment, the person lives that extra three weeks, and in the last second, the person returns wholeheartedly to Hashem. You can wipe away all your sins, and you can come to the next world, the clean slate. You don't have to go through Gehenna. Yeah, maybe you'll have to go through the other two levels, but that's much lesser, much lighter than going through Gehenna, the purgatory. One split second, you can change your whole life around, only in this world. Once you come to that world, it's done, it's all done. Stopped. The test stopped. It's gone. Finished. You can, you can no longer change or any answer. Whatever you have, that's what you come to the next world. And over there is a world of clarity. You can't mix the two. So you can't go to Gan Eden because I have good baggage and I have good deeds. But meanwhile, I have this baggage with me of all these scars and neg- negativity and impurities that I've accumulated over my lifetime. I've spoken evil and I've slandered and I've scoffed and I've uh, scoffed and I've, uh, I've um, wasted my time. I could have studied Torah instead. I wasted my time, etc., etc. You can't. 
You have to, you have to go through Gehenna to, to wring out all those scars. <coughs> then you're prepared to advance. Then the neshama starts getting used to and starts appreciating and enjoying the new life, spiritual life. And then the neshama can go for the rest of the life of the neshama until Mashiach comes, till the resurrection, the neshama can go on advancing and growing and every day. Continuing to grow, just like we go to school every day, we learn something new. We learn something every day. Is a, we learn something exciting. So too, there's the heavenly academy. The neshama every every day, the neshama advances and learns and grows. Uh, ad ad infinitum. So the mitzvah doesn't negate the avera. In other words, if you if you did it, the preponderance of your life was mitzvahs, and, and you know, let's say one third was sin. Is no mathematical negation of the... You, you still have to clean... They still have to be clean. The suit still has to be clean. <laughs> the if you're getting married, would you wear a suit that's one-third dirty? <laughs> good, good analogy. Good analogy. When it comes to Rosh Hashanah, then you go by the majority. The majority good, then Hashem writes you in the book of life and you live. But in the world to come, in the afterlife, it's uh, obviously... You know, uh, maybe the maybe the Gehenna will be much less. We won't have to go through such a because obviously a person who spends most of his life doing mitzvot has a sensitivity and an appreciation, and a feeling for godliness. So it's easy for them to get used to the next life because they they've committed their whole life to truth, to spirituality, to selflessness, to goodness, to godliness. So for them to go to make that transition to the next life, they welcome it. It's a beautiful experience. But if we have baggage, that baggage has to be taken care of. But it's a lot quicker process. It's the person who's very crusty, the person who had totally neglected a spiritual life, the person who's been total, totally materialistic. That's a very painful transition. Because he's not used to this life. That's not his life. So for, the, so for that, that could be a very painful, painful transition. And it's like, oh, it's, but that's part of the atonement. That's part of the process. Experiencing the pain and experiencing that hurt, that, that's part of the process that enables the neshama to be able to go to the next level, to advance to the next level. So tshuva don't wipe that away. You still oh, have to experience oh, if, that. If you do tshuva before you die, if you do tshuva in this world, then yeah, tshuva helps. Tshuva can wipe away the sins. No, tshuva wipes away the sin. That's why it's very powerful. You say Shema Yisrael at the end of your life and wholeheartedly return to Hashem. You can change your whole life around. You can wipe away all your sins. It's a tremendous, tremendously powerful moment. Every one moment in this world is so precious. You can't imagine. One split second, you can wipe the whole slate clean. Even if you've sinned all your life. That's how powerful Teshuvah is. That's how precious life in this world is. Only in this world you have that opportunity. Once you reach heaven, it's too late. It's all over. But Teshuvah has to be true. The truth. And in the other world, you have to separate the good from the evil. They can't mix together. In this world, we can do good, and we can have evil within us. We have good characteristic traits. Hopefully, the majority of our characteristic traits are positive and wholesome, but we all have our negative uh, quirks and worse. And they live together. Not in heaven. In heaven, you can't live together. You can't... It's, it's clear. This is here, and this is there. So you have to clarify. You have to separate. You have to cleanse. And this is the process. It's a very painful process, but you have to experience that pain. That's why it says, Hashem is kind to us, 
Because a little pain in this world, a little inconvenience, a little suffering in this world makes up for so much pain in the other world. It substitutes that we won't have to go through the Gehenim in the other world. A drop of pain, an ounce of pain in this world can make up so much pain that because in the other world the pain is unbearable. Again, there's no defenses, no rationalizations. The soul is stark naked in the world of truth. The beam of light is shining on you. There's no hiding, there's no escaping, there's no excuses, there's no bababamizes. It's the most painful experience in the world. <laughs> there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You know, we, we, we can't handle it in this world. Can you imagine in the next world? But the slightest pain, that the physical pain that we experience in this world atones and, and makes up for a tremendous amount of pain in the other world. So sometimes it's an act of kindness. Any inconvenience that we experience in this world, any momentary pain, physical pain that we experience, is actually sometimes it's an expression of Hashem's kindness. That He's substituting, substituting this world for the other world. That, that this cleanses our neshama. Any pain that we go through in this world just cleanses our neshama. We come to that world, it just the neshama just goes straight to straight to Gan Eden. There's no blockage. It's been cleared. It's been penetrated. The, the, the shell has been penetrated. The shell has been broken. The, the scar has been removed and cleansed and wiped and scraped away. So in, in, in a way, it's Hashem's, comes from Hashem's infinite kindness. It doesn't take away from the pain, but the Torah tells us that we should remember that that's sometimes an act of Hashem's kindness, ultimate kindness. Occupying oneself with the intellectual disciplines of the nations of the world is likewise included in the category of engaging in inconsequential matters insofar as the sin of neglecting Torah is concerned. For in studying the intellectual disciplines of the nations, too, one is guilty of neglecting Torah study, as is explained in the laws of the Torah study. Since a Jew is obligated to study Torah 24-7, every waking moment, every opportunity, so there's a real question. How are you allowed to spend your time studying studying other disciplines? Not Torah. Any discipline. It's math, science, I and mean, any discipline, every waking moment you have, you should be engaged in studying Torah. The Rambam says that we can see Okay. She's going to explain later. She's going to use Maimonides as an example. So he says, a person who has, a person who's just studying for the sake of study, he just, he's just studying for the sake, for the fun of it. He just wants to study because he enjoys studying. Instead of studying the Talmud, studying Torah, he likes to study math or physics, science, just for the sake of study. So if you had, could have used that time to study Torah and engage your mind in Torah, that falls into the category of Bittal Torah. You could have studied Torah and you didn't study Torah. You neglected the Torah. You have an obligation to, to use every waking moment to study Torah. There were many Jews who, where did they accumulate their knowledge of other disciplines? When they had to go to the, when they had to go to the restroom. That's where they kept their library. Great rabbis. That's when they would study. Because when, you, when, you're, when you're in a place like that, you're not allowed to think words of Torah. It's very difficult for someone who spends all his life studying Torah. Every waking moment, dreaming about Torah, suddenly turn your mind off and stop thinking of Torah. You're in the middle, you're engaged, your mind is... So they would have the library there, and that's, that's where they would read. 
That's where they would read about medicine. That's where they would learn languages. That's where they would learn science. And there's a discussion in the Talmud. They were allowed to learn Greeks. So when the rabbis say, yeah, find the time. It's not, not day and not night. And then, and then you'll, you'll find the time to study Greek. Otherwise, every waking moment should be spent in studying Torah. It should engage the person entirely. It should engage every waking moment. It's a question. It's a question in Jewish law. It's a serious question in Jewish law. The laws of studying Torah, whether it's permissible to spend time studying other disciplines. Again, we're not talking about something prohibited. We're not talking about studying atheism, studying idolatry. We're talking about studying science, math, medicine. Permissible, kosher, glad kosher. But, but there's, there's a prohibition involved. The prohibition of not neglecting the study of Torah. I can't just ignore that prohibition. That's one aspect. But he says in addition to that, there's another issue. When studying the other disciplines, other sciences, other disciplines, there's another issue. The top of page 131. Moreover, the impurity of the intellectual disciplines of the nations is greater than the impurity of idle speech. For the latter clothe and defile only the emotions which emanate from the holy element of Ruach, air, within his divine soul, by tainting them with the impurity of Klipanoga contained in idle speech, which is derived from the evil element of Ruach, air, which is one of the components of this Klipa in his animal soul, as mentioned above. The godly soul and the animal soul are both composed of spores four spiritual elements, fire, air, water, and earth. The emotions, such as love and fear, which one expresses in idle talk, emanate from the elements of air. Thus, idle speech defiles the emotional attributes of the divine soul, which emanate from the holy element of air by using them in the service of the animal soul's element of air, i.e. its emotional attributes, which are impure, since they derive from Klipanoga. He's saying, although he said that engaging in other disciplines and wisdoms and neglecting the study of Torah is, falls into the category of idle, idle talk because in the meanwhile you're idling from words of Torah but he says in addition to that there's an additional element that not only are you idling from words of Torah when you ha- could have studied Torah but in addition you're engaging your mind when a person engages in idle talk, an ignoramus engages in idle talk, and just wasting their time, so the impurity that they bring upon themselves only affects their emotions. You talk about things you love, things, 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 you, things you fear, and it's really, it's just, you're just expressing your, your personality, your character. So it affects your personality and character, but it doesn't affect your mind. However, when a Jew studies these, these um, other disciplines, science and math and other disciplines, it affects your mind. The impurity affects your mind. It seeps into your mind, which is much more delicate than your emotions, much deeper than your emotions, much more intimate than your emotions. Your mind is much more yourself than your emotions. Emotions are much more external. But the real persons, who the person really is, how does your mind think? The you know, your inner workings, your inner characteristics, your what makes you unique, how you think, 
Now you understand that's much deeper within a person. So if the impurity affects the mind, it affects you much, much deeper. Versus the emotions, which are which are more external. So if a person becomes contaminates his emotions, instead of expressing his love and awe for Hashem, instead he's just expressing it in idle chatter and idle talk. So he's, he's affecting his emotions. But when a person contaminates and brings contamination and impurity to the mind, you're affecting someplace much, much deeper. It has a much deeper effect on the person. And it changes you. You know, it changes you a lot more. When something changes you emotionally, it's, it's easy to revert back. But when something changes in your mind, when your mind starts, something gets into your head and you start looking at things differently and you start thinking differently and you start, changes your whole assumption and your whole perspective and your whole point of view, it's more subtle and more profound and much deeper to, to, uh, to deal with. When a person is poisoned in the mind, when a person is poisoned in the heart, you're upset, the person is upset, the person is angry. Fine, you know, you can, you can deal with it. But when a person's mind is poisoned, it's very hard to change. You know, they, they, when they sever a link and, and their mind, they're out and, and they don't trust anymore, they don't believe anymore, they don't understand anymore, then it's very, very difficult to change. So it's one thing if a person's mind is clear. You know, if you will, it's almost like the distinction between the Svardic Jews and the Ashkenazic Jews. While many Svardic Jews are not the most observant, but their lack of observance only affected their, their emotions. It hasn't affected their minds. Their minds are crystal clear. Amongst Sephardim, there's no confusion. There's no reform. There's no conservative. There's no orthodox. There's a Jew. Is a Jew. The Torah is holy. There's one Jew. There's one Torah. All the rabbis are mystics. All the great rabbis were mystics as well. They have faith. But I don't live up to it. But there's no rationalization. I know that this is the way you should act. I don't live up to it. But I know that this is the truth. I'm not going to twist and bend the rules just to make myself feel good. I don't live up to it, but these are the rules. And I'm going to marry Jewish. And the women go to the mikvah. And they're traditional. And they have a tremendous respect for Torah, and for mitzvot, and for anything godly and holy. Versus the Ashkenazic Jews. The Ashkenazic Jews were affected in the brain, in the mind. But the enlightenment or the endarkment, reform, conservative, orthodox, became a, a head trip, confusion, appeasing my conscience. Instead of being honest, I'm not living up to the Torah, oh, let me change the rules. <laughs> I mean, this is such blatant dishonesty. When the mind is affected, and the mind grows cold and you stop believing and you stop you start challenging you start questioning the very assumptions of Jewishness when, 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 you, when your mind is lost it's very very difficult so the contamination of the mind is much deeper than the contamination of the emotions 
And that's symbolized by the nations that Israel conquered. There are the seven nations. And then there are the three nations on the east bank of the Jordan that we're not going to conquer until Mashiach comes. What does this represent? Everything in the Torah mirrors and reflects what's going on inside, our own personality. Conquering Israel is also conquering ourselves, conquering our own personality, our own character. So we have the seven emotions. And that part is easy. To conquer, you have seven holy emotions, love of Hashem, love of everything that's good and wholesome, and the opposite love, lust, things that are inappropriate. You have awe, uh, awe of Hashem, which is healthy and wholesome, and then you have fears, which are crippling and paralyzing and are no good. Negative fears. So every positive emotion has a negative emotion, has a parallel, opposite. So the mission of a Jew is to conquer Canaan, take the seven negative emotions, the seven nations of Canaan, the seven negative emotions, and transform them into Israel, to a holy land. Transform it into a holy land. Take all your passions. You can't erase your passions. Don't become a passionless person. Don't play dead. Be a passionate person. But take those passions and harness them, channel them to holiness. You want to be passionate? Be passionate about godliness. But then you have the three nations, which today is unconquerable. We have no permission to conquer them until Mashiach comes. Because those three nations represent the mind. The Chabad. Chachma Binadas. That's very difficult to conquer. Because the impurity of the mind is very deep. It's a very, very deep challenge. And that's why you have to be very careful. You know, parents are careful what their children eat. But they don't, they're not careful about, about what their children read. Their children, what's going on in their children's mind. And those, those little precious minds. Because if, if something is warped in the mind and you get a wrong idea and your whole assumption of life is wrong, it's going to mess you up forever. You know, if emotionally you get carried away, you stray, you know, crime of passion. You know it's wrong. You feel guilty. You don't rationalize. You don't justify. I'm human. I'm weak. And there was a moment of weakness. But you're not going to rationalize and you're not going to pretend. But when the mind is corrupt... And you start rationalizing. And the more brilliant you are, the more you can rationalize. It becomes dangerous. You become so dishonest. It's, it's scary, the things you can rationalize. I mean, there were people who rationalized Hitler. Great philosophers, German philosophers. Who rationalize and justify philosophically. Justify Hitler. There are minds today in universities who justify and rationalize suicide murder. Shocking. But that's what happens. That's the corruption of the mind. When you read the New York Times, you read other papers. Justifying, rationalizing, excusing innocent murder of innocent people while condemning the good people, those who are trying to defend life. This is a corruption of the mind. It's very subtle, it's very deep, and it's very, diff- <coughs> very difficult to deal with. Very difficult to undo. And that's what happens as a result of studying other disciplines other than Torah. When a Jew studies Torah, it strengthens your mind, it purifies your mind. You think straight. You think. Your perspective is clear. You think clearly. You see things clearly. You perceive reality clearly. But without Torah, when you study other disciplines, even if you're studying math, science, physics, seemingly innocent, innocuous things, 
it has a subtle effect on your mind. You start seeing the world differently. And you become very cold and distant to holy things, to godly things, to Yiddishkeit. It cools your ardor. It cools your passion. It throws ice on you. And very subtly. And suddenly you start becoming very distant and detached from Yiddishkeit. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.